I'm going to read the entire psalm, but you see that um, from the sermon, there will be a particular section of the psalm that we want to pay special attention to, but I'm actually going to touch on a number of things. It's a fairly good-sized psalm. It's It's a beautiful psalm. They're all beautiful. We have a beautiful God. Psalm 118. Um, verse 1, hear the holy word of our perfect God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. For my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me, set me in a large place. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks for you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the thorns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your loving kindness is everlasting, and it's bound up, Heavenly Father, in the Son of your love, the Savior of our love, your covenant mercies, your condescending love. We we thank you, O God. In love, Father, you sent the Son to die for us. In love, Lord Jesus Christ, you were willingly sent, and you died for us, and rose for us, and cleansed us, and now we're no longer criminals but your children. All, all because of this has said, this covenant love, this loving kindness. May we in turn, as we are recipients of your great love, O God, may we in turn go and do likewise. May we be a people that are keen to spread love to our neighbor, especially to our believing neighbor, but to our neighbor. We, we pray for, in Christ's name. Amen. I hope you're a student of the Psalms. I hope you use the Psalms regularly. We've mentioned a number of times 
Martin Luther was kind of a devotee of the Psalms, and he would use the Psalms in the language of the Psalms to pray himself. So when he would run out of language to pray, he would pray the Psalms. And he was a hymn writer, and he would kind of rearrange Psalms, and we have a a couple of hymns. Mighty Fortresses, Our God, is a paraphrase of, of a psalm. It's always good to use the language that God the Holy Spirit has inspired, as we see in the life of God's people. This book is an experimental book. This is the life of the believer when they're high, when they're low, and all sorts of times and seasons of their lives. And so this is a very, very helpful book that we would pray uh, properly and um, in such a way that God would be pleased. And, of course, he's pleased with the words that he's inspired. But the entire book, just as a pastoral application, is useful to help us pray. And as a brief aside, Matthew Henry has a book on prayer. And I recommend it to you, maybe $12, maybe $15. And um, it's, it's just a compilation of various things from Scripture arranged logically under various heads. The adoration of God, the supplication of God, confessions of sin, and all sorts of heads. And so you're able to use that. You flop it out and read through those various scriptures. I want something to thank God for. And we can thank him for the things that we can think of. But then we see the scriptural things. So just as a pastoral application, the book of Psalms is wonderful to use, but all of scripture is wonderful to use. So we should be a people of the book, Protestants, but we should be a people of prayer. And, um, and so if you are lacking fodder, fuel to pray, Pray the Psalms, pray the word. This particular Psalm that we're considering, we, we are in, um, I think it's uh, maybe our, my ninth or my tenth sermon. And I think I'll shorten the series to maybe 20 sermons total in this Finding Christ in, in the Psalms, which is what this little mini series is. And then I'm going to pick up a book and we'll plow through the book. Um, but maybe we're halfway through. And so this is the ninth or the tenth sermon in this series. This particular psalm, in a similar way, we looked at Psalm 41 last week, it starts in a very similar way. Um, if, you re- if you remember last week's psalm, it began, with, um, it began with a praise or a benediction, which is a blessing. We are blessing God. God, you're the blessed one. It's, it's the adoration of God. The Puritans would say the adorable Godhead or God is adorable. Now, if you're not used to reading the Puritans, usually the, the only person on the planet we call adorable besides our wife, we, we tell our wife that she's adorable, is our grandchildren. We tell our grandchildren they're adorable. Or my, my daughter looks at her little, the little, she thinks both of them are adorable, but her little one is kind of a chunky little one and she thinks he's adorable. So we don't usually use that word for God. But I, I think if we were kind of considering it properly, which is what the psalmist is doing, and he uses that word over and over again, loving kindness, loving kindness, it's that Hebrew word has said. It's a family love. It's the love of the, the father for the children. It's the love of the, the bridegroom for the bride. It's for those who are elected by God in, from eternity and then called to God in time. It's his people. And so it's just, it just condescending love, covenanting mercies. It's just all of those things. And so the psalmist opens with, 
adoring God because God is adorable. He's praising God because God is praiseworthy. We're, we're, we're going to look at uh, the harder part of the psalm for us is a little bit the rejection of Jesus. But just as we saw last week, benediction, blessing, and then in the middle of Psalm 41, which is we considered last week, was a lamentation. So praise, rejoicing, weeping, rejoicing. This particular psalm has a somewhat similar flow to it. It's the praise of God for who he is and what he has done for his people. And then within that, we're going to see a a section that will deal with the refusal, I'm going to argue, by the Jews of Jesus as the Christ. And so the greater subject is what? The rejection of Jesus. So remember, we're looking for Christ in the, in the Psalms. We've seen the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus, the prophethood of Jesus, all of those things. And then we've seen a couple times, and this text will actually include a, a, a particular idea. Remember when the, the, the little children in the temple area were saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're praising and they're using Hosanna for Christ. And the, the Pharisees say, make the little children stop. And he quotes the psalm. He says, oh no, oh no. God the Holy Spirit has inspired these little ch- children to praise me. And so we saw the praise of Jesus, the reception of Jesus by little children. Then we saw the betrayal of Jesus, which we were considering Judas. So Jesus is being praised by children, but Jesus is being betrayed by who? Or whom? A pretend friend, a pretend disciple. And then what we're going to look at here is the rejection of Jesus. And the rejection of Jesus will be done by what class of people? We're going to see it's the Jews. This is church people, as it were. People in the household of faith. People that should have said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They should have said that. So we're looking at the refusal of Christ or the rejection of Jesus Christ. It's prophesied, but it's going to be occurred by Jews. They, they, should, they had the book. They should have been looking for him. And this is a fulfillment of, um, of many, many prophecies. But in John chapter 1, 10 through, verse 10 through 13, he came to his own and his own knew him what? Not. That's the rejection. So we have the beginning of the psalm is adoration of God. Then we have this business, very sad business, the prophecy that Christ will be rejected. But at the very end, which is what I love about this, the psalmist, God the Holy Spirit inspires him again to not end on a, a melancholy note to not end on a, a, a low, a, low key, a, key, a minor key, but to end on a high note. Yes, he will be rejected by some, but not all. Even the, the, the verse that I referenced, John chapter 1, 10, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, his own knew him not. But to as many as received him, what? He gave the right to be called sons and daughters of God born not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, not by mother and father, not by church membership, but by God the Holy Spirit who gives faith. So some will reject and some will receive. And it's according to the God, the divine counsel of God. So praise, somewhat sorrowful um, uh, um, uh, statement of the rejection, and um, and then praise. And this is how he begins it. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. And and then look at, that's the beginning. Look at verse 29. This is the bookends of the psalm, how the psalm is framed. 
Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. It's just the goodness of God. God is, good. God is great, but God is good. God is majestic and God is merciful. When we, when we talk about God is love, 1 John chapter 4, um, he's essentially good. Um, it, it's, almost, it's almost beyond our, our, our comprehension. When we talk about the love of God, that refers to the goodness of God. There's a, a, a writer, his name is Octavius Winslow. Have you ever heard of this fellow? Octavius Winslow, 1800s. I think he was a, a born in Britain, I think. He moved to America for a time and then went back to England. And he was a, a Baptist. And then towards uh, the end of his ministry, he um, joined the Anglican Church. I, th- that's just, just information. He writes a treatise on God is love. And then he'll walk through the various attributes of, of God, which is, what we're do- which is what this book opens and closes with. He'll say God is a God of love. God is a God of hope from Romans 15, and he walks through all of those things. And as you're reading this, I read some section my wife and I had worshipped this afternoon, and I read some from Octavius Winslow looking at this kind of an idea that the loving kindness of God is everlasting. God is so good. And I, I read some of that and then combined with Octavius on the love of God and the hope that we have in God. So the, the, the present tense God loves us right now and then the future hope is God will love me forever and ever and ever and we both kind of looked at each other and I don't know if you this happens and you you feel it with the psalmist you kind of want to go to heaven like right then and not in a bad way of like I want to die and run away from bad things but when you look at the goodness of God if he's if if we if we feel this intensely loving towards him and hopeful towards him, just reading this and experiencing it in the valley time, what will this God be like when we're in his immediate presence? It's almost like I want to be with him right now. And so it, the, the psalmist has that kind of a, a sense to it. So we have the beginning and the ending with praise. Look at what he says, O house of Aaron, let the house of Aaron uh, say he actually says that a number of times there's kind of a priestly character to this particular psalm as well we're just going to look at an overview of the psalm and then maybe spend a little bit more time on the rejection but there's a priestly character to it let the house of Aaron say if you read the the first I don't know uh, in the book of Leviticus maybe the first six or seven um, I think it's chapter one to chapter six or chapter seven you have this various sacrifices and then chapter 7 or 8 on, you have the sacrificers, the priests. So obviously this is kind of, um, it, it's the shadow of, of the coming of Christ and the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament. But when you look at, it was God who chose Aaron to be the high priest, and then the family, the tribe from which he came, to be the Levites, the non-Aaronical priest, to be the Levites, the other families that descend from Levi to be helpers to the ironical priest. It was God that called the priest to be priests. And so in this particular psalm, you remember what the, the function of the priest was. Basically a twofold function. Um, I think in the New Testament, we have uh, one priest, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, Christ. I don't think ministers are priests. I'm not picking on the people that call themselves priests as ministers. I like a great 
to, to do in Anglican churches and so on. Certain Anglicans I like, um, and they call them their ministers priests. I'm, I'm not really for that, but it's not a big issue for me. But I think the Bible does teach us that we have in the New Testament epoch one priest. I recognize the priesthood of believers from the book of Revelation. Thank you, Martin Luther. Um, but we have a priestly character, and the priest does two things. First and foremost, he offers sacrifice to God on behalf of the people for the sins of the people. So he's a representative. He's a God-commissioned representative that God gives as a gift to the people to make sacrifice for the sins of the people, and then he makes intercession. And so here we have um, uh, we have both. There's kind of a prophetic nature and a priestly nature. We have the word of God coming to the priests of God and to give praise to God. Um, it, 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 Charles Spurgeon sees another reason why um, there, we have this reference to the priesthood, the, the sons of Aaron. He makes the connection from Ezra chapter 3 that the very same language was given to the priests in the book of Ezra for the consecration of the uh, second temple. So you have the first temple was the temple built under King Solomon, and then the second temple is built under Zerubbabel. So you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. They come back with three successive waves after the Babylonian captivity. And that second temple was being consecrated by the Levites and the Aaronical priests, and they use this language. The loving kindness, that covenant mercy of God is forever. They're consecrating the temple. What did the temple signify? but where God and man could meet. On one day of the year, the high priest would go in on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You would have the mercy seat, which was a box. In the box would be the law. Over the law was the mercy seat. Upon the mercy seat would be sprinkled what? Blood. Read the book of Hebrews. It's all fulfilled in Jesus, our true high priest. So the priests of God were to give praise for the the salvation that God has wrought for us in Christ Jesus, who is essentially this loving kindness to us. And if you put yourself in the place of um, of the priests and their singing of the loving kindness of God, particularly in the context of Ezra, I want us to go from the idea of praising God, the priestly character of this particular psalm. And throughout the psalm, it has... Um, there are great expressions of thanksgiving, of gratitude. And God's people, even acknowledging the hard things that happened to God's Christ, his rejection, and some of the things you'll see, what will man do to me? Why should I fear man? Well, you don't say those things if everything's going swimming in, swimmingly in your life. You say them when you're going through affliction. But the notion is, we as God's people can go through hard times, even fiery furnaces, with hearts of gratitude. We can be an exceedingly grateful people. And in the, in the psalm, he says, your loving kindness never goes away. So when we are in the furnace, the loving kindness of God never goes away. It's with, with us in the furnace. When we're going through times of pain or privation or distress or disillusionment or any of those things, the loving kindness of God never God never goes away. And so this is kind of how we as God's people can navigate living in a fallen world with a fallen body without being, as Paul says, crushed. Um, we, we can carry out what James says. 
to count all these trials joy. How can we do this? Because the loving kindness is everlasting, because he's with me. So the world and the church should be able to look at us and say, that's a grateful person. I don't know how they're grateful, but they're grateful. We're grateful for Christ. We're grateful because even if our life has fallen to us for a time in a painful valley, Christ is with us in that painful valley. And, And in the context of the consecration of the temple, think of the people. They're back from slavery. And they're back from slavery, which is in accordance with the word of God. God said, you're going away for 70 years, but you're coming back. And I'm going to reconstitute my worship, which is essentially showing you that Christ will come and pay for your sins. So we ourselves should be a grateful people. I mentioned there's a priestly character to the psalm. And obviously, there's a prophetic character to the psalm. There are three specific prophecies, as we'll look at, but it has a prophetic character. If the priest is God's man that represents God's people back to God, the prophet is God's man that represents God to the people. The priest makes sacrifice, makes intercession, but the prophet delivers the word of God for our salvation, and he proclaims it to us. That's the prophet. Thus saith the Lord, both law and gospel. The Bible contains two subjects, law and gospel, Old Testament, New Testament. You can subdivide it variously. I understand all of that, but primarily law and gospel. And the, and the, the business of the prophet is to say, thus saith the Lord. We know, we don't know who the prophet is. I think it's a Davidic character. It sounds a lot like David, but we're not told. So we can't be definitively sure who wrote this, the human instrument, but we can be definitively sure the divine author of this, because it's in Holy Scripture, it's the Holy Spirit. This is the second Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 17. So this is priestly character. It's a prophetic character because it's in, um, it's in the canon of Scripture, um, which is the word of God, obviously. And the particular, there are three, as I say, three particular prophecies, and they all have to do with the ruler of God's people. And the ultimate ruler of God's people is not King David. Uh, The ultimate ruler of God's people is David's son and David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Davidic king. This is, is it 1 Samuel 7 or 2 Samuel 7, the covenant promise made to David, um, after you I'm going to raise up a child from you and his kingdom will, will be forever and ever and ever. It's not Solomon it's um, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first prophecy that we're going to look at is that God ought to be uh, trusted. Look at Psalm uh, 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the book of Hebrews. Um, the book of Hebrews was the book that convinced me of a, uh, a, a, away from a, a certain eschatological position that I, prior, I, I used to hold. Um, it's a very, it's a very uh, popular view um, since uh, Mr. Schofield popularized it from Mr. Darby. And um, I, I don't want to get into a whole bit of that. But it was the book of Hebrews that convinced me that I was in error prior and that to understand a more excellent way. Uh, that section there and the Lord is for me, I will not fear what can man do to me. This is telling us that this ruler 
over God's people that we ought to trust in, the New Testament comes along and, t- and takes that verse and-, and quotes it in the New Testament epoch and says, this is the Christ. This is the Lord in, in whom you are to trust. God come in the flesh. And I'll give you that. Psalm 118, verse 6 is quoted in Hebrews verse uh, chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 5. Again, when you study your Old Testament, you should know you should know both testaments, and the Old Testament will be realized in the New. And if you know the New Testament, you'll see the seed form in in the Old. And I will just say this: whatever the New Testament, if a New Testament uses an Old Testament ter- text and says this is what that means, no matter if any other Christian comes to you and says, "Well, it doesn't really mean that." If the New Testament inspired scripture says that verse is Christ, it's Christ. Does that make sense? Holy Spirit's a way better interpreter than a lot of other uh, Christians. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. This is Hebrews. For he himself has said, and he's going to quote the Old Testament again, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And then here, This is in reference to the Lord. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The book of Hebrews is, you can essentially entitle it, Christ is better, don't go back. Christ is better, don't go back. He's better than the angels. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Moses. He's a better priest. He's a better prophet. He's a better king. Don't go back. The Lord is with you. Uh, On... uh, uh, in the, um, in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, and lo, I am what? And lo, I am what? I'm with you to the end of the age. And what can man do to me? Beloved, we, we are afraid of man. We are afraid of man. I'm afraid of man. And I don't just mean I'm afraid of people hurt. We're afraid of the creature. What will happen to my son? What will happen to my daughter? What will happen to my grandchildren? What will happen to this one? What will happen to that one? So we usually think fear, like, oh, you're going to hurt me. Not that. We're afraid about man, for man, of man. And our eyes are on the wrong being. Our eyes ought to be on the Lord. If God, God forbid, were to take my son, God forbid to take my daughter, my grandsons, God forbid, can we still say the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting? Can we still say that? Yeah. Because we have him and we have all. And we'll soon see our loved ones. So that's what I say. So there, it's prophetic in that way. Um, Psalm 118, verse 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in, in man. It's better to trust in the Lord to put confidence in princes. From these words, Martin Luther, writing his commentary on this particular psalm, said this. Listen to what he says faith is. This is Luther, Martin Luther. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and so certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. That's incredible. This is a prayer of, of faith. God, you're so great. There will be some people that will reject your Christ, but God, you're so great. I thank you that some others won't and will receive him. 
boy, the Psalms are so wonderful for our, they're convicting and at the same time comforting. The second prophecy that's being fulfilled in this particular Psalm that we're told in the New Testament concerning Christ is in reference to 22 and 23. And I, I want to unpack that a little bit more and let's see how I pull this off. But look at verse 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And we're not told if this is David. If this is David, it's written somewhere in uh, circa 1000, 1100. If this is even Moses, Moses writes what? Moses writes Psalm 90, um, which is Moses lived when? 1450 BC. So who's to say? But this is hundreds of years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there's a prophecy that Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, will be, be rejected by his own. I commit to you reading not just Octavius Winslow. Read the Bible. Be, there's this, a, a phrase by um, Spurgeon, which our brother just gave me a beautiful book easel, that says, uh, spend time in other books, but live in God's book, live in the Bible. That's Spurgeon. Be, be, be people of the Bible. But I am a big fan of people that know a lot about the Bible and they help me understand the Bible. Um, when we come to this business of Jesus Christ being, um, being rejected and understanding the, the fulfillment of prophecy, there is a man, he was not a Reformed man, he wasn't a Calvinist, but he was fabulous. He's an amazing Christian. Josh McDowell. Um, he's an old, old man now, and his son is the president of a, of a seminary somewhere, and his son's fabulous. Josh McDowell wrote a book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Volume 2 is probably too tough to read. Um, get Volume 1. You will love it. The fulfillment of all of these messianic prophecies. And you say, well, you know, is the Bible, should we trust the Bible? Hundreds, thousands of years earlier, God said it's going to happen just like this. Born of a virgin, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem, riding into Jerusalem, and they'll be shouting Hosanna, and, and they're waving palm branches, blessed as he comes in, and it happens, Zechariah 9, and so on, and then he'll be rejected, and it happens. Beloved, sometimes you hear people say, oh, the Bible has lots of mistakes. We should be people of the book, and not in a mean way we should say to them, could you show me a few? And the great thing is then you'll have an opportunity to start reading the Bible and quoting the Bible with them and then let the Lord's word convert them according to the Holy Spirit. Matthew 21. I'm not going to read the entire context. Matthew 21 is the parable of the, the, the vine, uh, the vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard, and then the son of the owner of the vineyard. And the, the servants after the servants, they go to the, the vineyard. They're seeking the produce, and you know what happens um, the people abuse the, the, the helpers of the owner of the vineyard and they stone some and they kill others and then the owner of the vineyard says, well, I'll send my own son. They'll, they'll certainly respect my son and they're looking, he's looking for fruits from the vineyard, the fruits of righteousness. This is Isaiah 5. Israel is the vineyard, the church is the vineyard. And so he sends the son and then you know what the people do. They say, this is the son, this is the heir, let's kill him and we'll get the vineyard. And Jesus tells the Jews this story, and they know that it's about them. And he says, well, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
And he says he'll kill, he'll destroy those wretched, wretched people for killing his beloved son and not giving the produce. And he said, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. God is going to take the kingdom of God away from you Jews and give it to a nation that will produce the fruits of it. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Read Matthew 21. And, and this is the verse that he quoted from Psalm 118. Then he said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. This is Christ. So when sometimes you think, you know, Jesus never preached that way. Oh, if you say that, I know you don't read the Bible. Um, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said this to them. Have you never read the scriptures? This is Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore I say to you, this is Christ to the Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and it will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. That's the second specific prophecy that refers to Christ. I want to do one more, and then we'll return to this. The third prophecy is we've already referenced it a number of times. Psalm 118, verse 23, 25, excuse me. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Matthew 21, Matthew 9, Matthew 23, 37. I said this as a former Roman Catholic in the liturgy of the church. Every week we would say this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosea in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosea in the highest. This is Psalm 118 fulfilled in the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have Christ is worthy to be trusted, the Christ, the Davidic ruler, will be rejected, and then Christ, the Davidic ruler, will be accepted, received, will be adored, will be praised. So three prophecies from one particular psalm that come true by God's governing providence in the New Testament epoch. Therefore, we should trust the Bible, and we should trust in the author of the Bible. And we should trust in the living word, which is Christ. Let's look a little little bit at the rejection of Jesus as the ruler over God's uh, people. The Bible tells us that he is the the chief uh, cornerstone. And obviously, the church, the people of God, are being likened to a building. Um, Sometimes the church is likened to a bride, both in the Old Testament epoch and the New Testament epoch. So the, the Old Testament Israel, the household of faith, is likened to the bride of God, Ezekiel chapter 16. And then we are likened to the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in the book of Revelation and Ephesians chapter 5, that Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Uh, we are the field of God, the vineyard of God, as we just referenced. Um, and then here, God likens the household of faith as to a temple, as to a building. And if you know 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are the building. Peter picks up that God is building this living building with living stones. And he, the power of it, the efficacy is the Holy Spirit. But we're made holy stones in Christ Jesus. And Jesus is likened to the chief cornerstone in, in the foundation. Isaiah, God through Isaiah says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then 
God the Holy Spirit takes that Isaiah prophecy and quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and says Christ is that foundation. Christ is the core. So our salvation individually and then collectively as as the church is built upon Christ. So Christ is the savior of the church. He's the builder of the church and then he's the capstone or the keystone. He's the finisher of the... So he's the builder of our salvation. He's the author and the, the finisher of our salvation. He's the builder of the church. He's the completer of the church. It's all Christ. And so he's likened to, to a stone. And he's, he's a firm foundation. And that's the notion. It's vital and it's fixed and it's steadfast. It's immovable. It can't be moved. And in this is the perseverance of the saints, but that will be another sermon. So Jesus is the author and the builder of our salvation, the finisher of it. And then we come to the rejection of Christ by the builders of God's household. And this is clearly in reference to the Jews. The Jews as a people and then in particular, the leadership of the Jews. This is not anti-Semitism. If you read, all of the prophets were Jews. All of the apostles were Jews. All of the early disciples were Jews. Jesus was a Jew after the flesh. Um, and the Bible is an equal opportunity critiquer. Uh, the world did not know him. The worldling, the Gentile, in his, in his own knew him not. The Jew... Romans chapter 3, have we said anything? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Are the Gentiles better to the Jews? No, they're all sinners. But you remember when the ecclesiastical Jews, the leadership of the Jewish people, came to John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist call them? You brood of what? Vipers. This is stunning. These are the people that are going to reject Jesus. I want to look at a couple of reasons why the Jewish people, by and large, not all, we just mentioned that there were all of the early church were Jews. So some people did believe. Why did, by and large, the masses of Jewish people and almost all of the leadership of the household of faith, why did they reject Jesus? Why did they reject Jesus as the Christ? Why? The Bible will tell us. The Bible will tell us. What's the, what's the fundamental people reason that people today are not believers in Jesus. What's the main reason? Is unbelief. You think, well, Pastor John, that's not insightful at all. What's the main reason people are not believers? Because they're unbelievers? Right. That's exactly right. And it doesn't get any deeper than that. This is Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4. Beware of an evil heart of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. They don't believe. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. They don't believe in the book of the God of the Bible. They don't believe in the Christ of the God of the Bible. They don't believe. Remember the masses of people of Israel that came out of the wilderness? What did God do to the entire body of military aged men that came out of bondage and went through the wilderness except two guys? What did he do to them? He killed them. He said, I swore in my wrath you will never enter my rest. The whole lot of them. 600,000 military-aged men, the whole lot of them. Two guys had faith. And the rest were unbelievers. How many people got on Noah's Ark? Eight. What happened to the rest of them? They're all unbelievers. Read the Bible. Read Hebrews chapter, Genesis 6 through 9. All unbelievers. Beloved, we should not be stunned when people reject Christ. 
we go from unbelief to faith. Faith is the rare thing. So the principal reason that the Jews rejected Jesus is they were unbelievers. Now, this is a stunning thing. And I I never want to make God's people despondent. I really want to be encouraging because I feel we should be encouraged. I never want to look at, you know, who in the world, who in the church, most people here or not. I think everybody here is on their way to heaven. But I know this, both from reading the Bible and because I have eyeballs. The bulk of the visible household of faith when Christ came, they were unbelievers. They were unbelievers. There was no faith. They had the word of God, but they didn't believe in the God of the word. They, were, they had circumcision, but they didn't have the things signified by the circumcision. We could apply that to the church. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, when Christ comes back, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? In the Olivet Discourse, when Christ comes back, the love of many Christians will go cold. The love of many Christians will be hot for, in lawlessness. Believers. So this is a frightening thing. The primary reason Jesus was rejected is because he was met by unbelievers in the household of faith. I have said often, it is my firm belief, if Jesus walked into most churches and he preached the way that Jesus preached in the Bible, they would fire him. They would kill him. They would crucify him. He 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 wouldn't make sermon number two because he's not the Christ they want because they're unbelievers. And so it's frightening. Let me take... I don't want to go too long, but I do want to bring these two points out. Let's use Pharisees and Sadducees as kind of figures. The Sadducees were the worldly guys. They were the Hellenists. They were the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The Sadducee didn't think there was life after death, and they were leaders in the Jewish church, the household of faith. They were leaders. They didn't believe there was life after death. They didn't believe in judgment. They didn't believe in heaven or hell, but they're Jews. They have Bible. They have circumcision but they're worldly. We have other things to do. We've got to buy and sell and eat and drink, other big things to do. And Christ comes along and says what? I'll save you from your sins on the cross and take you to heaven. And what do they say? Save me from my sins. Save me from what? Hell. We don't believe in hell. Save me to go to heaven. We don't believe in heaven either. And in fact, I don't even think my sins are sins. I don't need you. What do you think of that? Are there many Christians that think they're Christians, but Jesus to them is just not a savior from hell and not a savior for heaven, not a savior from sins. He's just, you want to be a good religious person, but let's do the big things. Visit kids and visit grandkids and buy and sell. I just, I have bigger things to do. Their treasure is somewhere else. And when Christ comes along and says, it's either 100% me or enjoy your treasure. They said, we, we're too filled with the world. Beloved, the world, love of the world sends more people to hell and keeps people from Christ than the love of particular sin. So using lawful things unlawfully damns a lot more people. It blinds a lot more people's eyes to Christ. And then the Pharisees, why did they reject the Lord Jesus Christ? This is easy. These were the nationalists. These were the national zealots And they were zealous for something else. Religious tradition. Religious tradition. And I guarantee you this is true in in many, many churches. Christ comes along and says, listen, I'm going to clear away the rubbish of all of this man-made tradition, and it's the word of God. Read Mark chapter 7. 
is going to be the word of God. And here it is. Here's what God says about me and what I've come to do to save you, to sanctify you, to, to, to adopt you, to glorify you. All of these things is me, the word. And what do they say? We don't really want the word. We would like some smoke and some incense. Da, da, ba, 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 ba. We want clothes. We want the kneelers. We want the ha, da, da. We want all of this. We don't really want that. That was the Pharisees. And the other thing the Pharisees were really keen, and I think the church should listen to this, um, they, they, they exchanged the love and the desire of, for God and Christ in heaven for national zeal. For national zeal. We've got to kill the Romans, and we've got to make Palestine great again. And that was the Pharisees. Beloved, I see... I, I, you know, I don't want to beat up. I want to end on a good note. But I, I, I do see the commingling of a patriotism, nationalism, whatever you want to call that thing, the love of America, the desire for America, the commingling of that in Christianity. I don't mean you can't be patriotic. I don't mean you can't love America. Jesus says he loved Israel and that we should pray for our country and our leaders. Of course, we should love our country and pray for our leaders. Be the best citizen you could be. Romans 13, all of those things. Acts 4, Acts 5, all of those things. But when you exchange love for Christ, for political, social, national, you're a Pharisee. And then when the real Christ comes along, you say, I, I, don't, I don't really want that kind of a Christ. I want someone that's going to drive out the Democrats so we can have heaven in America. That's the Pharisees. And they didn't want the real Jesus. And so they rejected him. And it calls him a, a cornerstone. The Bible says he has no form or no comeliness or handsomeness that we should be attracted to him. He just looked like a regular old man but his work was to seek and to save and to sanctify and glorify a holy people for God's own possession. But the, the way the, the book ends, the, 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 the psalm ends, is not with a rejection. It, it acknowledges that there will be people that reject. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Beloved, we don't focus in on the fact that some people do reject. There'll be other people that receive the Lord Jesus Christ and they love him. And I just want to say this, and I promise I'll be quiet. There are people here tonight, and I'm one of them. We have gone from Christ rejectors. We've been either Sadducees or Pharisees or just unbelieving worldlings to now Christ is our life. So, beloved, don't look if you know folks that are Christ rejectors. Don't be embittered towards them. Be in prayer for them. We were unbelievers. And God opened our blind eyes to the wonderful, adorable, Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.